Hello, and welcome to the Out of the Cup podcast, brought to you in partnership with Boris Effects and our sponsors, Evercast and Jump Desktop. I'm Steve Hallfish. I'm a working film and TV editor. For the last eight years, I've done more than 350 interviews with the world's best editors. I've been using Boris Effects for more than 20 years, and I'm proud to partner with them to bring you great filmmaking content. Today on Art of the Cut, we're speaking with five of the six editors who worked on the HBO series Winning Time. Those editors are, in alphabetical order, Oscar nominee Hank Corwin, ACE, Jessica Hernandez, ACE, Max Kepke, Felicia Livingston, and Jeremy Weinstein. Julia Rodzinski also edited the show but couldn't join the call. Hank Corwin, ACE, is an Academy Award nominee, Ace Eddie winner, and BAFTA winning editor. He's edited or co-edited six films that have been Academy Best Picture nominees, including JFK, The Tree of Life, Moneyball, The Big Short, Vice, and Don't Look Up. Most recently, I interviewed him for his Oscar nomination for Best Editing for Don't Look Up, directed by Adam McKay, who was also one of the directors on Winning Time. Hank is also a producer on the series. Jessica Hernandez, ACE, has also been a guest on Art of the Cut before for her work on a black lady sketch show, for which she won an Emmy and was nominated for an Ace Eddie. She's also an editor on the TV series Shining Girls and numerous film and TV series. She's also won a Peabody Award. Max Kepke was an additional editor on Mile 22, which we featured on Art of the Cut. He also cut the feature Payback and has worked on numerous videos for bands such as U2, Pearl Jam, and Bon Jovi. Felicia Livingston is a previous Art of the Cut guest for her work on the TV series All-American. Her other TV series included The Red Line and The Flash. Jeremy Weinstein has been an assistant editor on numerous projects, including Vice, and steps up to the editor chair for Winning Time. He also edited the feature film Binti. Before we hop into our discussion with the group, a brief thank you to our sponsors. This episode is sponsored by Evercast. The Evercast app combines video conferencing with secure, high-quality streaming and video collaboration tools all in one place. Review content with your team and make cuts together in real time. No file sharing, no hardware, no headache. If you sign up anytime this summer, mention Art of the Cut to get $75 off each month for the duration of your new subscription. For the full details, contact sales at evercast.us. Exclusions apply. For those who've been listening to Art of the Cut for a while, you've heard me talk to numerous editors about their use of Evercast. So check out that evercast.us site to see how many people rely on it. Let them know you heard about it on Art of the Cut. Jump Desktop is a high-performance and secure app that lets you virtually connect to your editing bay as if you were physically there. Keep all your assets in one place and connect to your powerful editing bays from anywhere. Jump Desktop's high-performance remote desktop protocol lets you edit from any low-powered laptop. With end-to-end encryption, native support for Mac OS and Windows, and multi-monitor support, you can be productive from anywhere. Jump Desktop also has collaborative screen sharing for collaboration with your team. See what thousands of editors have been using to get their work done from around the world. Visit jumpdesktop.com cut to begin your free, no limits, 14-day trial today. And to our partner, Boris Effects. I've been using Boris Effects and Sapphire for more than 20 years, so they're not just a sponsor to me. I feel like they've been a partner in my cutting room for decades, helping me to deliver on the creative vision of my clients, directors, and producers. 
For all of us, our work is about bringing a creative idea to the screen, and for me, Boris FX is one of the important tools that I use to do that. To see how they can help you on your latest project, check out all their tools, including Sapphire and Mocha Pro, at borisfx.com AOTC. Also, if you want to read this interview with great visual support, go to borisfx.com AOTC. That site has lots of other great filmmaking content, so keep that bookmark. And now my discussion with the editing team for Winning Time. Could we have everybody say their name so people can identify who they are by their voice? So, Hank, could you start? Yeah, I'm, I'm Hank Corwin. I'm Jeremy Weinstein. I'm Felicia Livingston. Uh, Jessica Hernandez. Hey, I'm Max Kepke. Great. So those are the voices you're going to be hearing. And uh, hopefully you guys have had a chance to either watch the show or planning on it because I'm watching it and I'm loving it. I wanted to get into the style of the show. I mean, I just love this from the opening montage from, from the very beginning. If we could start with Hank, just about the importance of setting a style at the beginning so the audience knows what they're getting into. There was a time and a place for this show. And I hate using the the word authentic. It's become so overused. But maybe having an emotional authenticity, you know, because you're never going to you're never going to match the times completely. Even like they shot with some of the stuff with a Nikigami camera, and it looks a little soft because I was working in the '80s, you know, where we had Nikigami cameras, and they were they were so sharp and so crisp. <laughs> Or your memory of it is a little soft because I shot with an Ikigami camera and they did seem sharp back then, but nothing about standard definition is sharp. <laughs> well, you know, you're right. You're right. God, I guess that, that sort of dates us, Steve. <laughs> I heard Todd Ben Hazel talking about this recently and they said those cameras are so old that they bought like 10 of them and only... Three of them worked, and so one looked a certain way, another was a workhorse, and the other one only did this really dream buggy like stuff. Uh, Jeremy, they were state-of-the-art. Yeah. <laughs> it's almost like Panaflex. Or Panaflex. You couldn't, I don't think you could own them. I think you could only rent them or something. What we wanted to do with the cameras and the sound as well we really were trying to set this emotional tableau using picture almost almost like painting in pastels. I mean, I wanted to have like this this quality of this being somewhat of a memory, some something in the past that ultimately becomes part of a, a film vernacular and you just get caught up into the thing and it becomes sort of the style of the picture. It becomes the normal for the picture. But in the beginning, even with some of the crazy picture and pictures we did, and we do, all of us do, it was always meant to be an impressionistic painting of the times. Yeah, and you guys used Super 8. Is that real? Yeah, it, it is. For the most part. I mean, we'd make it up too if we needed it. <laughs> Justin Cameron, I think, was the one who shot our Super 8. And yeah, he, he would think about it. Like he'd read each scene and he'd think about it thematically. And so sometimes he'd be able to capture things that they wouldn't be capturing normally with the uh, the 35 or the Ikigami. So 
it seems like each format gave us its own things that we could use in different ways, like that were really special. So it wasn't just like framing it. It's like each thing could mean different things if we wanted to, or it, it obviously has its own feel, but it's, you know, it's, you're trying to make the whole scene feel a certain way. And I, yeah, I don't know. It just, it just gave it something special. I think. I think Justin was able to be more nimble than the rest of them. He could just sort of like scooch in between. He could just get places that nobody else could get the shots. So it was really helpful in that way too. Well, another thing about just all the different formats and the style being so open to, you know, the time and kind of freewheeling time is we were able to use kind of any format for any part of any scene that we wanted. If that shot told us emotionally, but we, then we'd use it. It didn't matter if it was Super 8 or Ikigami or 35 or if it was out of focus or in focus or zooming. Just if it emotionally made you feel right or what we needed, we had liberty to use it. There was really no rules for us to, oh, we can only use eight millimeter here we can only use ikigami in this way which is really liberating for an editor you know this goes way back to when i cut natural born killers the initial temptation was to use certain cameras for certain moods for certain emotions for certain actions and i found really quickly that it didn't work it became very prosaic it it became very prescriptive with this show we just decided just cut emotionally Episode two starts with the Jerry West montage. It's like him as a child. And that was one of those scenes that I remember switching back and forth between formats. There's some eight millimeter in there and there's some 35. Can somebody talk about trying to mix those formats and doing that montage? Yeah, I, I cut episode two and yeah, that, that beginning, it, it goes to what Max was just saying. It's how you cut emotionally. Like we did mix in some Ikigami when we got outside with Jerry playing, especially when we were close on his hands and um, with the snow falling. If it feels right, you cut to it is was kind of the, the feeling. I guess that I, I used and we're like introducing this new character and just the young Jerry. And like, we want you to feel like you're there. So what was the best way to make that happen? I love it. Uh, Hank, first of all, tell me, did you cut the open or was that an open comp- like a company? Oh yeah, no, I cut that. I cut that. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about that. Cause it really sets you up for the show, sets you up for the, the style of the show. Tell me about building that. Yeah, you know, I wanted to set it up. I mean, I I love stock footage because it's it's so messy and real and and very human and humane. I never really worked in TV. I had no HBO has like an army of attorneys. So every time I had a shot, they would say, "No, we see a face." And of course we see a face. You know, people have faces. They had to get indemnification from from a person that was like 300 yards away. It was the proverbial bitch trying to cut this thing, you know, because every time, you know, you build these structures and they become a house of cards. My gosh, I was working on this thing for months, you know, and I'd, I'd be so happy. And, and, and then somebody would come and kick my sandcastle. So we finally got it. I think it's all legal. <laughs> I mean, it's playing, so I guess it's legal. Yeah. From somebody else, like we haven't heard from Felicia or uh, Jess, this show does break the fourth wall. It always interests me in doing that. Can you talk about any of that fourth wall breaking that happens in the episodes that you cut? How you get in and out of that? Does it take something special as an editor to cut something where the actor is breaking the fourth wall? For me, it was actually when the actors break the fourth wall, that's actually the easiest part of our job. So when they do it, it's actually very easy. And... 
at least for me, I would always bridge that if I needed to go in another emotional direction. They're just saying their lines, saying their scenes, and then they just turn towards camera. And we have it in every take, every camera angle. And that actually was the easiest part of our job, at least for me. It's so interesting that you mentioned tone. So you used it sometimes to switch tone. Can you talk about the tonal shifts in the show? I actually didn't have that much in my episode five, but in episode nine, I have it in the very beginning in a scene where Frank kind of breaks the fourth wall and Jerry Buss, you know, it's one of those things like for my scenes with Jerry Buss, some of the scenes he's like really, really angry and, you know, yelling and screaming. And you have to really be delicate in how to handle that. And so for me, I was just like, when I had a character that broke the fourth wall, I'm like, okay, now I can either like look at it and see where that tone goes. Because normally if the actor is breaking it, it's, it's usually giving like that internal dialogue. That's what, that's what it is of what they're thinking. But the scene has to keep going on. And I would just switch tonally between that and uh, the rest of the scene. Jess, what about you with either tone and managing tone in an episode or the fourth wall thing? The only thing I would add to the fourth wall thing is that we definitely found that it had to become judicious, like that it became like an overused device very quickly. So we'd have to be very careful about how often we'd use it. In episode three, which was mine, we open in this big argument and we break it. But it's it's so fluid right there. Like he's just mid-argument and then he's arguing at the audience and back. So that was pretty pretty simple kind of like smooth transition. But generally, tonally speaking, yeah, I think it was really gut. I always say like it's music. It tells me sort of the rhythm. It tells me what it wants to be. At any moment, like the Ikigami camera might give me a little more emotion than the other ones. For some reason, I would say it would like tell the truth. It was just uglier, but you'd get such a different performance out of people whenever I'd use it. And some of my favorite pieces of, of my episode are the ones that are in Icky, like Pat Riley, like begging for his job to uh, to check. Like I use it very specifically there um, to kind of get his vulnerability of, of begging for this job. But again, it was never, like Hank said, prescriptive. It was just from the gut, like just where it felt rhythmically correct to do so. And again, like all of this, I just thank Hank. He allowed us to have such a freedom in the edit. Like he inspired so much of that. I can't thank him enough. One of the things that I noticed in the first episode, Hank, that I've seen in your other work before too, like in Don't Look Up, is that time fracturing. Sometimes a person is talking and then you see them drinking a scotch while they're talking or smoking a cigarette even though they're talking. Talk to me about using that and setting up that style, being brave enough to do it. <laughs> Ultimately... It's not a matter of courage. It's very empirical. It's a way of cutting that sort of allows you to incorporate all kinds of emotion and, and behavior into a seemingly one take. You're saying something. You're making an editorial statement. If you use a piece before the slate where someone's looking off into space or he's laughing, you're getting to know a piece of behavior that ordinarily you wouldn't see. And there's occasionally there's a real clash. It's a, a dialectic, a real struggle in the, in the edit, but you learn more about the characters. Felicia, talk to me about picking up that style. I'm assuming that before you cut any scenes, you watched the pilot. Yeah, I mean, I watched the pilot and, and the, I was blown away by the pilot. You know, I get hired and then I'm in the editing bay and I'm like, how the hell do I do this? <laughs> <laughs> I would have the same thought. <laughs> 
Um, so, you know, what's great is I have the pilot in front of me and I have the timeline. So I, uh, every time I would cut something, I would just kind of go back and look at the pilot. And for me, it took a while to, to get into that mindset to be able to like cut into that time fracturing. So my initial route for me was to cut it linear. Once I got into it, it took a while, but I was like, I couldn't think any other way. Now I'm a little bit spoiled because that's the only way I can think. And on this other project I'm on, I'm like, I'm doing it. And I'm like, I realize, oh, this is not, I can't do this. You're going to work with some directors and they're going to say, what are you doing? <laughs> yes. You know how to edit? <laughs> yes. Yes, I actually had that conversation last week. <laughs> I love that. Max, tell me about picking up that style and feeling comfortable or the freedom of that style. I've had the privilege of, of knowing Hank for a long time. And the best way to put the style that we're trying to emulate here or go with our show is just uh, following your imagination. I just really try to experience the footage the best I can in, a, in the most personal way that I can. And then just kind of follow my imagination and try to get to know the characters personally. Just kind of let it take me where it wants to. And then like Felicia's saying, you kind of start to see what works with certain characters and with certain film stocks and certain music. And you kind of develop this muse for yourself. And it's like this little alter ego that you have. And you just kind of hold on to it for as long as you can. Sometimes, you know, editing can be frustrating, but when it's not, it's very liberating and very fun. And it just kind of, kind of just flows. Yeah, let me explore that for a second. I just watched the episode where Irvin is playing basketball with Cookie's new boyfriend. And at the end of it, because he just hands the guy his ass, of course, you cut to stock footage of two dogs humping. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was uh, that was episode two. Yeah, I think I think one of the things that Hank really pushed us to do is just like be bold, like don't be afraid to make mistakes. Like the worst that's going to happen is they say no, or you get called silly for doing something, but don't be afraid to like expose yourself to rejection. If you, yeah, fail your rejection, all those things. Cause what comes out of that is, yeah, you, you swing for the fences and if you don't hit it, then you're okay. But sometimes some really great things come out of that. So the idea behind the, the dog thing was that besides it being kind of a funny, you know, button on the end of it, it was like, you know, earlier in the scene, you have cookies, boyfriend calling magic a dog. He's like, oh, you know, you're a dog. Everyone knows it. And so magic's like, I'm going to show you, you know, what a dog I am like. And so it was a, a little bit in your face, but I thought it was, a, I thought it gave a little kind of joke to it. Some of the inner life, which is also something Hank talks about. He's like, when you're cutting, like think about your character's inner life. And I think that's where a lot of that layering that you talked about before came from. You can really discover just some really great moments by, you know, messing around. The first time I met Hank was at Lost Planet. I was interviewing with him to be his, his assistant on, on Vice, the, the Dick Cheney film. And he, he showed me something he did for a commercial spot for Hummer, which was he pulled the film out, like the, the 35 millimeter stock. And he's like, instead of cutting it one way, I cut it the long way, like across many frames, like with the razor, I just took it and did it. And he spliced it back together. Like, uh, so it was like this jagged edge and he's like, and it, they, they loved it. They played it that way. I don't know. Maybe Hank could 
talk about that. The, the reason I think about that a lot is it just like speaks to this Hank, his ethic of editing, like his ideas. There's always a way that you just can do it. But like, what if we try it this other way? It's like continually exploring. And this whole process for us was just really filling creatively exploration, like a big experiment that resulted in this show that I think we're all so proud of. It was this wonderful year of my life. Did you know that you had that stock footage of the dogs or did you think, I've got to be able to find some stock footage of dogs? Which was it? My assistant, Juliana, who is also an excellent editor and who actually helped me cut that episode. She she got some scenes in and had some great ideas. I said to Juliana, I'm like, hey, Juliana, can you find me some stock of dogs, you know, going at it? I want it to be like in a park so we can feel like it's, yeah, it's kind of there. And like earlier in the scene, we put in some dogs barking in the background. So I tried to make it not just out of nowhere. And sometimes like in other scenes, I had other animals in and they didn't make it into the final cut. It was It was a special way of working. That's awesome. My new favorite quote is, failure is not the opposite of success. It's a step towards success. I love that idea. Jess, talk to me about uh, some experimentation that you were able to do in, in one of your episodes. Uh, well, there was, I mean, there was tons of it everywhere, but I would say like there was some basketball at the end of seven where I just like freeze frame the entire last moment of the game, like every single person. And I was allowed to try that. And it was a little bit of an homage for don't look up's um, last scene. Like I did a lot of split screens in three between like magic having sex with these three women and his family on the phone. And so that was a lot of fun. I just think we were able to do it everywhere. Like I can't almost think of one example of it. I saw somebody mention it as sort of a Warholian style. And I think there is like a real free association to it. There was one scene where Bus is doing his hair as a toupee. And in it, he's like, I'm a math guy. And I asked my assistant, Anna, who was awesome as well. And um, I was like, try to find a kid who's doing math wrong. And I found a kid like adding like four plus six is 11. And so when he says that, we kind of cut to that. And it just kind of gives you an internal bit about who he really is, right? I don't know why I free associated that, but sometimes it worked really well. Sometimes it was just silly. And I would say you wouldn't believe how much amazing stuff hit the ground. There's cuts of these shows that you will never see that are awesome. And again, one thing that Hank had told me that was probably one of the most insane, he was like, take like four of these scenes and make them one scene. And so that was a fun attempt. And some of it really worked. Some of it, we were able to really integrate scenes into each other in ways that were seamless and you might not even have noticed. I love it. Hey, Hank, I want to get you back into this discussion again. I wanted to talk about something that happens in the, in the first episode, which I loved, which was a co the coin toss. It's 43 seconds. The coin toss, which should take a second and a half, <laughs> takes 43 seconds. Can you tell me about those 43 seconds? I'll start and end by saying that I didn't cut that scene. Juliana, our assistant, cut that scene. Jeremy, did you, did you work on it as well? Uh, yeah, I think, I think that was one of the special things about the pilot was Juliana started with it. I worked on it also. And then I'm pretty, I think you're being a little modest because I'm, I'm pretty sure you finished it. So I don't know. It was super collaborative, right? Like we all, I think that yeah, was the I, show. You know, the intention was to get people thinking a certain way. It's like she went for it. She really felt that she had a grasp on how to take it as did Jeremy. So I, I said, go for it. Look, I'm older than these guys. What I try not to do is make value judgments on their cuts. I might not have put in the dog humping at the end of that scene, but that's like a value judgment. 
the scene itself and, and the thinking behind it was as valid as anything I could come up with. So it wasn't in my purview to change it. It's something else that you do fairly often and that's in the style of the show is even cutting off sound. For example, when they can't find a coin because it's a bunch of rich people and they're like, they're trying to do the coin toss and like nobody has a, has changed, right? Claire bursts out laughing. Like she laughs in that scene, but it gets cut off. Like her audio is literally clipped off. What's the value of cutting somebody's voice off like that? Yeah, no, you know, it's something I've been playing with more on the later films I've been doing on Vice and on Don't Look Up. You know, the purest form of editorial is light and then the absence of light or sound and the absence of sound. And, you know, if you have someone laughing and then you cut it off, it's very abrupt, it's jarring, and you become acutely cognizant of the fact that someone was laughing. You know, as opposed to having it just be smeared in there. So you're making a point. You've got to be very judicious as to how you do these things. It's almost like this kind of cutting, what I'm discovering, has to be the exception to the rule as opposed to the rule itself. It becomes the language and the convention, and and it's not so special. And one thing I found with this kind of cutting is it's very subjective, and it may be purposeful to me, and to someone else, it may seem absurd or, or gratuitous. So, you're, you know, you're always going to take heat for this kind of editing. This is the converse of the transparent art that editing is supposed to be. It's editing, editing to make a statement. Talk to me about the graphics that were used, especially in that first episode. One of the points is, you know, the difference between Larry Bird and Magic Johnson is one of them's white and one of them's black. Instead of kind of making sure that's subtle, it is in your face graphically. There was really nothing subtle about that episode and about about the concept. It becomes a teeny bit satirical when it's done that way. But, you know, we didn't want to equivocate. I, I would say it's the same with Jess's episodes and Max's and Fee's as well. When we use graphics, they had to be purposeful. There are great graphics in 7 and in 10, but what Jess did in 7, kind of creating the graphics of a postcard of what she did to tell where the teams were playing, I'm just a huge fan of and just a little, you know, geeking out. <laughs> Thank you so much. That's very sweet of you, Pete. That I literally got a, a note from the producer said, we need more basketball that wasn't shot. They were going on away games. So they were, were supposed to go to Indiana. They're supposed to go to Detroit and then end up in Boston and the big games in Boston. But we had no basketball for Detroit or Indiana. I don't know how we came to it, but I was thinking about like old school graphic elements where like sometimes you would see the players inside of the word. And I thought I could get away with more cheats of basketball and crowd and stuff within the lettering than I could trying to fake it with what was available. It fully came out of that and it turned out pretty cool, but yeah, it was, so I started to just like use footage from every single person's episode. Anything that hit the ground is in those two graphic titles. <laughs> that's, that's great. I love that. It, w one of the things that, uh, you know, I, I'm picking up from this group is something that I remember from being on Oprah with 30 editors, which was the great ability to go into other people's rooms and go, oh my gosh, how did you, can I see your timeline? What are you doing? Were you guys all together or was this, was this COVID era where you're all in your own homes? 
No, we were together. We, uh, they had us come in. So it was probably, it was like the first post COVID or inter COVID thing we were doing. We were tested daily. There was a sense of, I feel like the show basketball, everything has a competitive nature and it, it brought that out in, in a great way among all of us. There was one really interesting thing. I wanted to know whether it was in the script, which was Shark the Shark is on a newspaper cover. And then the, the photo starts to talk to the people <laughs> in the conversation. Tell me about that. Was that in the script? Uh, yes, that was in the script. That was that was my episode. Um, that one was really simple. They just they just shot him. And then we just dropped it right into the newspaper. So that was one of our easier, <laughs> easier, easier little pieces. I just wasn't sure whether it was scripted or not. You never know like what's what's scripted and what's not. I love all that. No, on this show, you really don't. On this one, it's we're allowed so much freedom in editorial that we go off the reservation. You work like this, you know, until you're proven wrong, you know, or unless until a showrunner or a director tells you to get rid of something. It just seemed to be stylistically a way to make each one of these scenes a little more complete and, and richer. So we've talked about the out-of-the-box thinking that you guys used, but I also wanted to talk about the, the real subtle editing. And I, I loved a scene that you cut, Hank, where Magic and his dad meet with Jerry and the old owner. A lot of that scene is in the reactions. And I love the reaction shots and the moments that you chose to show what they were thinking because it was often different than what they were saying. It was subtext. Yeah, no, you know, I find that eating scenes are some of the hardest to cut. Or just scenes where, where people are sitting and talking. Magic's dad is very dignified. He, he loves his son dearly, and he wants him to succeed. And he's willing to over... He understands where Jack Kent Cook has come from. I recall he, he said something to the effect that he works, you know, he's explaining he works on the Chrysler line, and Jack Kent Cook responds by saying, Jerry Buss here... Just you're gonna like this. He just tried to buy the Chrysler building, you know. So there was a complete disconnect. And Magic's dad, he kept it together, and he was very dignified, you know. And so you tell a lot about Magic and his upbringing by how his dad reflects what's going on. It's just a way to make a scene just that much bigger and that much more important. Let's hear from uh, Jeremy or Max. We haven't heard from them about music. There is a ton of music in this show, and it's really eclectic. How much are you guys speaking into that? How much are you asking somebody for something that's great? Talk to me about using music. Well, I love using music with, with editing, and even when there's not music on it, I try to make a scene musical. The rhythm of the movement or whatever, even basketball scenes are musical to me, even without music. We tried to use music as like a sound design element as much as just score. Just, you know, genres and tempos, they all tell different things. And, and it doesn't always have to be just slap a piece of music on it and just let it play and just all the, the lyrics tell you what it is or the, the rhythm tells you what it is. It can be embedded into the scene. As we were discussing earlier, just, you know, the absence of sound can goes a long way. So we all like kind of were experimenting with just hard cuts in and out of music. How do you get into a scene? You know, a song can get you into a scene for 10 seconds that you can cut out of it or it can come in halfway through. Just less traditional ways of using music. In the end, that's kind of why there is so much music because it's being used in so many different ways. Uh, just uh, continuing on the topic of music, I, I one of the things about this show was I worked on the pilot with Hank 
And then I think we finished up in December of 2019, right? And then we were going to start doing the series in April or something like that. And then COVID hit and things changed. And we were kind of just in this holding pattern. During that time, Max Bornstein, who was writing scripts, would he'd send, you know, versions of scripts over. And I, you know, I wasn't doing much else. And so I'd start reading. And every time he'd make a mention of a style or a, a specific song, like, like in episode two, it's named after this Peggy Lee song. I'd go and download the entire discography of that artist from, you know, from basically 1980 back. When we started the show, I had a massive amount of music to bring to it. And I tried to share that with everybody. So we had, there was a lot of Peggy Lee that uh, we ended up using uh, two songs. What one that made it into show into the show and then maybe another for attempt. So we had too much Peggy Lee, but um, other than that, there was like a great choice of music. And then besides that, just if we felt something, we'd go for it. And sometimes we'd get, we'd get it into the show and other times we'd replace it with score or um, another song, but it was, it was kind of fun. I feel like I got a lot of the music choices that I was going for. You know, it being a period piece, kind of the late seventies and so much about Jerry Buss. I mean, what a, what a great time for music in general. It's just really fun to kind of explore the popular music of that time. It's kind of the origins of hip hop and funk and soul. And there's just, there's this cross section of music that was happening at that time in the United States. That's really fun. And, you know, when you get a chance to put a funkadelic song on something, you do it. Obviously there's, there's a great opportunity for music in this show. And it was, you know, a lot of fun and, to play with it. And Hank did something really special in that first episode when he was cutting the basketball scene and he cuts in that funkadelic, right? Or who's, um, Bootzilla. Yeah, it was Bootzilla. There you go, man. Little Bootsy Collins. Yeah, like it's just like in the middle of the game. He's just like in with it. The style that you can use to push certain things forward. And then like you were saying, like sometimes you want to bring back things and be subtle. But the dynamic of the whole editing in the show is just so wide. It's like another thing that made it really special. To explain to uh, the Art of the Cut audience what we mean is he didn't just cut in the music. He cut in the video of the guy performing the music, right? Which happens a couple of times. Did anybody else cut to not just the music, but the performance of the music? We all, we, I think we all tried and then legal <laughs> took it back. Damn them. <laughs> there was something we learned that was called visual vocals that cost like quadruple the amount. And so we had to take them out in a lot of places. Well, in one of my episodes, there's this um, explanation of Jack McKinney's offense, which is kind of up-tempo basketball offense where everything's you know, everything's flowing, everybody's moving, and, and the script called for this kind of reel-to-reel thing that he had maybe put together to show the team how musical his offense can be, that it's like jazz, it's improvisation. You move here, the next guy moves, you're moving without thinking. There's like these rules that you follow, but move without thinking. So that called for a lot of jazz performance. It feels like these guys are playing the song, which was actually composed piece by our composers. Even if it's not exactly Bootzilla, there's this musical energy where you see maybe a musician playing something. It doesn't necessarily have to be in sync. Emotionally, it is. And um, I think it's very effective for our show. I, I might be misremembered, but Fee, what did you use for music in the reveal of the Laker girl scene? I remember seeing that and I was like, holy shit. For the actual dance sequence scene is Ring My Bell. At one point I had the team is introduced. I had the Jacksons, Can You Feel It? But yeah, the Jacksons got taken out. 
You mentioned that it was all about the feel of the music and the tone. And one of those other places I thought was really interesting, I think, is the beginning of episode three, where Magic is getting ready to leave his house. And the music is very unlike the rest of the music in the show, but tonally and emotionally it feels right. Talk to me about choosing those things that you might think are outside of the style, but you feel it's right because of the emotion. I think it's exactly what you said. It's based on emotion, like no matter what. In the end, that was a piece that the composer took over um, because originally we had some like big needle drop that cost way too much money. But again, it was the sentimentality that was created there. You know, he's leaving home. It definitely was sort of this bittersweet moment for him, right? And so we wanted to play up his childhood and like those memories and have that sort of evocative in the music. That was Glasper in the end that found the same sort of emotion in it. But generally speaking, that would be the case. Like we'd do everything from like metal, tempting something that was from way off period that they ended up composing something much better. I think it just depended on what it felt like. Like I, like I said, every scene tells you what it wants to be. And I think because the show is eclectic in style, then audibly it can be just as eclectic. It, it created just this freedom in every avenue of editorial that you can think of. What I love is like we were all just fans of everybody's work as far as like, cause music and songs became a character of the episode. So you would look at a character and try to get into their internal dialogue of what they were thinking. And then you would think this just works. You hear it and you're like, this works. And I love what Kipke did at the very end of episode eight. That is a soul cover of California Dreaming. I think all of our characters are kind of feeling a little bit lost or maybe frustrated. The coaches are all kind of infighting. And um, I think, you know, just California Dreaming and, the, and the, the Lakers and everything, it's just kind of a, it's kind of an easy union. But we found a nice soul version of it that uh, kind of connected emotionally with what our characters were feeling. I love it. Hey, Hank, I think you're still there with us. Can you talk to me about the role of empathy in in cutting? Oh, wow. (laughs) I think it's something that all editors strive for. You know, they they want to identify with their characters. They, They want to feel what their characters are feeling. It's kind of a universal thing. I'd like to think that our show exemplified that. I remember, Fee, did you cut the Kareem episode? Yes, episode five, yeah. That episode was just so emotional. It was glorious for that reason. It was just such a high. And, you know, that's what we all strive for. That's how I felt about nine, by the way. I just thought your nine was absolutely amazing, Fee. Oh, thank you. Those two were like really emotional with five with Kareem. It was a feeling of like this heavy toll of making sure that I get it right. As fun as it was to cut, it was just like this heavy toll of just making sure that I make sure that the emotions come out so that the audience can feel it. As everyone knows, you're in your editing, editing bay and you're cutting. Sometimes you, you think, okay, I feel this, but I don't know if anybody else does. And then in nine is the scene with Kareem and Spencer Haywood, where Spencer Haywood basically talks about his very difficult childhood growing up in the segregated South. It, it got very personal for me because it was something that I related to as what my grandmother told me, how she grew up. I understood those emotions that Spencer Haywood was talking about. So I just wanted to make sure that that came across. Talk to me about that importance of a lived life as an editor and bringing yourself and bringing your connection with other human beings into the edit suite? 
Well, I mean, it's a big question, but I think anybody's life experience brings a perspective, right? And in all of our episodes, you can almost see uniquely our voice on them. I think it just allows for a bag of tricks, right? Or a bag of skills. And also the female editors might notice if the female characters aren't receiving as much attention or shown in a certain light. So we strive very hard to make sure that they, there's a balance to that. Yeah, I think, you know, our job as editors is to connect with an audience with humanity really and your own humanity and it's and if you're not like true to yourself and doing what you believe in people can feel it in your edit and in your show uh, you can't you can't fake it you have to be honest and you have to be honest with yourself so that other people can enjoy your work and if you're not you're just kind of doing yourself and your audience a disservice i think this circles back to something you were talking about initially steve and that's empathy whoever we are whatever we bring to the table we have to try to empathize with our characters i think it's one of the hallmarks of being an editor you can get away with being antisocial as a director or a director of photography uh, you certainly can't as an editor yeah, I mean, I, I don't know how much I can add to what's already been said. Maybe the ironic part is like, in order to do this work, it feels like you have to sacrifice so much of your own life, like time with friends and family and like the opportunity to have lots of life experiences. I mean, we, you know, we get these small amounts of time in between jobs or in the morning or at night, some weekends and stuff, but like so much time goes in that I think we end up missing out a lot on on things in our lives that maybe our edits could benefit from. But I, I don't know. It's, it's, a, it's a question. Do you think that you are a different editor now than you were younger in your years? That that life experience that you had has changed you and that changed the way that you see what you're cutting? Yeah, absolutely. When I cut the pilot, it was two years ago, you know, before the pandemic. So you were young back then. Yeah, exactly. No, I just find that as I've gotten older, my feeling has become more austere, you know, sort of simpler. And I sometimes question whether what I've done editorially is the right path. I was so full of fire before, you know, now I'm just that much more full of questions. That's just wisdom right there when you're full of questions instead of full of answers, in my opinion group. I just want to say goodbye to everybody. Thank you all so much for spending some time and sharing your process on this great series. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Steve. Yeah, we thank really you. appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks, Steve. Thanks for juggling the five of us. <laughs> no, yeah, you did a good job passing the baton. That's it for Art of the Cut this week. Thank you so much for listening. Again, if you'd prefer to read this interview with visual support and clips and trailers, head on over to borisfx.com AOTC, the new online home for Art of the Cut, where there's a ton of great expert filmmaking content for filmmakers of all types. Also, check out my book, Art of the Cut, Conversations with Film and TV Editors, for a topic-driven curated look at the craft of editing. Thanks to our guests, Hank Corwin, ACE, Jessica Hernandez, ACE, Max Kepke, Felicia Livingston, and Jeremy Weinstein. Thanks to Dylan Giovanetto for editing today's podcast, and thanks to our partner Boris Effects and to our sponsors Evercast and Jump Desktop. Be sure to check out their offers at jumpdesktop.com cut and evercast.us. I'm Steve Hallfish. Thanks for listening, and please tell all the editors and filmmakers that you know that we've moved 
and that they should subscribe right here for more great Art of the Cut interviews every week. Thank you.